We are back in the swing of things in the book of Nehemiah. We got back into that uh, last week and we started into chapter 12 and we're going to finish chapter 12 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn there with me, Nehemiah chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you might find some in the pew right behind you. But last week, as we started this chapter and looked at those first 30 verses of Nehemiah chapter 12, we learned that, that this chapter is, is, is dedicated, you know, pun intended, to the dedication of the walls and the gates surrounding Jerusalem. And so Israel performed a ceremonial dedication. And I told you when we looked at it last time, it's, it's something similar to our ribbon cutting ceremonies or our groundbreaking ceremonies that we do when we, you know, quote unquote, dedicate a new building, for example. And ceremonial activities are, are interesting to me. Um, and, and they have their root in the Bible. And we see them throughout the Old Testament, different types of, of ceremony. Many things related to the worship of God in the Old Testament were done in a very ceremonial way. There was a proper order. There was a proper dress. There were holy days. There were feast weeks. There are all sorts of prescribed ceremony in the Old Testament. Also, if you look in the book of Ezekiel, for example, specifically those chapters that deal with the millennium and the millennial temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's much ceremony contained in those chapters as well. You see it in the book of Revelation. Also, ceremony is something that God has used and, and, and will also use. When, but, but what we find... With ceremony, is it seems like whenever Israel is on the scene, that's when God orders ceremony. Because we actually don't see much ceremony in the New Testament. We don't see Paul giving super specific orders for worship like Moses and Ezekiel did for Israel. We get some instruction on things like the Lord's Supper and that sort of thing, but, but not like the Old Testament. And that's because, as we've learned, we've learned throughout this study, and not only this study, in the New Testament economy, we are to worship him with our life, through the church, all the time, not just in the temple. We've seen these verses over and over, but I want to remind you again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, tell us why this, this truth very clearly says, Paul says, what? Know ye not your body? is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the ye's in those verses connect us individually to the body of Christ overall. And we as the church are to worship God, we are to glorify him through this assembly. But, but we don't necessarily do it ceremonially. I mean, there is a certain a bit of ceremony involved in our Sunday service, but it's not you know, prescribed like it was in the Old Testament. But, but for us, we're to do it consistently. We're not only to do it when we're gathered together, we're also to do it in our individual lives. We have the Holy Spirit inside us, and we don't have a temple to go to worship the Lord. We have a church, and we are the church. And we certainly worship together corporately on Sunday mornings. But what this means is that while the Old Testament and how God worked with Israel doesn't apply to us doctrinally, there is so much we can learn from them. That's going to be the case today. 
certainly on a personal level. Another verse we've looked at before is Romans 15.4. That tells us this very things. For whatsoever things were written aforetime in the Old Testament were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And that means that we can and we should learn from this ceremony in the book of Nehemiah. God is incredible. God's word is awesome. How he works it all out. And even something like that, something, a ceremony in the Old Testament that's specific to Israel, the applicability that it can have to our lives. And so today we're going to see the, the details of this dedication and those details are going to give us the description of a dedicated life. And that's the title for today's sermon. Last week, we looked at the buildup and the preparation for this dedication ceremony. And how it, we saw how it was, it was expressly tied to their thankfulness for all that the Lord had done for them, all that the Lord had done through them. They weren't there to, to pump themselves up. They weren't there to brag on themselves and say, look at what a great job we did on this wall project. They weren't trying to get people to look at them. They were trying to get people to look at the Lord because they were thankful. And we saw how that, being thankful, is a part of God's will for our lives. To be a thankful people in and for everything. And we also saw how their thankfulness was displayed. And it was displayed as they prepared to dedicate the wall. And it started with them perceiving their place, their, their place in history and the others that had gone before them, those shoulders they stood on and their, their place in humanity, who they were compared to the Lord. And then we saw that as they were preparing to dedicate the, the praise that they were to bring forth and the passion that was involved in that, and how they were excited about what God was doing. And then lastly, how they prioritized their purity. Because before they did anything else, they purified themselves and the walls and the gates. And those gave us some personal checkpoints for our own life to test our thankfulness to the Lord. And, and by extension, to test whether we are living inside of God's will or not. Because it is God's will for us to be thankful. But like I said, today we get to the dedication ceremony itself. And this is, is really interesting, at least to me. And we'll talk about this as we move throughout the passage. But one of the keys, actually the key we are going to see today, is that this dedication was a joyful experience. And that should come as no surprise because it's no coincidence that thankfulness and joy are tied together. In, in our lives our level of thankfulness is going to lead to our level of joy. We're going to see this. The key verse in this entire chapter is verse 43. And we'll get there. The, the word joy or a form of it, joy, rejoice, is seen five times in that, in that one verse. But, but here's how those, this connection is made. See, thankfulness leads to us being inside God's will, right? It's God's will that we are thankfulness. And being in God's will, when we're living our life in God's will, that leads to joy. It's inescapable. If you want joy, position your life inside what God specifically wills for us. And one of them is that thankfulness that we looked at last week. And of course, this doesn't guarantee ease in life. 
This doesn't guarantee a life that is suffering free. It won't be. We, the Bible tells us that. But in, in spite of all that, it can be joyful because it's worth it. He is worth it. Jesus describes this life of, of thankfulness inside God's will as one that abides in him. So we are to abide in him, inside his will. And that's where true joy comes from. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. And he gives that discourse on, on how he is the true vine, right? If you've been around the church very long, you're probably familiar with this passage. He's the true vine and, and, and we're just the branches, and we're to abide in him. There's no life apart from the vine because he's the source of everything. You remember that passage. Well, here's how he ends it in John chapter 15 and verse 11. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. That's what abiding in Christ does. It brings us joy. That's what living inside of God's will does. It brings us joy. So if you're needing joy today, you've come to the right place. And we've come to the right passage. Joy comes from abiding in and, and dedicating your life to the Lord and being thankful for all he's done. It comes from a life dedicated to serving him. So let's see what this life looks like because we need to be about that life. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to read verses 31 through 47 down through the end of the chapter. So follow along with me. As I read God's word, Nehemiah 12, starting at verse 31, the Bible says, Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall toward the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half of the princes of Judah and Azariah, Ezra and Meshulam, Judah and Benjamin and Shemaiah and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, namely Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph. And his brethren, Shemaiah, and Azareel, and Milali, and, and Gilali, and Maai, and Nethaniel, and Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe before them. And at the fountain gate, which was over against them, they went up by the stairs of the city of David at the going up of the wall above the house of David, even unto the water gate eastward. And the other company of them that gave thanks went over against them, and I after them, and the half of the people upon the wall from beyond the tower of the furnaces, even unto the broad wall, and from above the gate of Ephraim, and above the old gate, and above the fish gate, and the tower of Hananiel, and the tower of Maia, even unto the sheep gate. And they stood still in the prison gate. So stood the two companies of them that gave thanks in the house of God, and I and the half of the rulers with me, and the priest Elikim, and Messiah, and Minimim, and Micaiah, and Elanai, and Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, and Shemaiah, and Eleazar, and Uzi, and Johanan, and Melchijah, and Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang loud with Jezariah their overseer. And here's our key verse. And also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For, the Lord, for, the, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. And at that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the firstfruits, and for the tithes to gather them into the fields of the cities, the portions of the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. 
And both the singers and the porters kept the ward of, the God, of their God and the ward of the purification according to the commandment of David and of Solomon his son. For the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chief of the singers and the songs of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave portions of the singers and the porters every day his portion. And they sanctified holy things unto the Levites, and the Levites sanctified them under the children of Aaron. All right, let's pray. That was a lot. Thanks for staying with me. We're going to pray, and then, then I'll try to explain it to you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the time we have to, to come together as one, as your body, as your church, to, to worship you together in song and praise and then in your word. Lord, I pray that you speak to us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit does that work to teach us your word. Uh, where what, what it is exactly we need this morning. And, and above all, Lord, I pray that you're glorified. And I pray that you're lifted high. Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. It is honoring to you. And again, Lord, that you get glory through it. We love you. Be with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, if any of those names that I just read happen to be yours and I mispronounced them, please accept my apologies. Um, I actually do take time and, and, you know, try to study the, the phonetic pronunciation, but sometimes when you're in the midst of reading them, you kind of forget uh, what it is. But um, anyway, hopefully that wasn't too distracting. But, 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 but let me set the table. We read a lot of verses there, and, and, and you know, as you're reading through it, you can kind of just get in a, in a, in a glaze and, and, and the words kind of pass over you. So let me set the table for what's happening in, in what we just read. This was the ceremony aspect of the day, and it was actually quite unique. You see, the, the Jews were accustomed to having workers and watchers on the wall. But for this day, people were assigned to be worshipers on the wall. And, and just so you understand, the wall was built so that people could be on top of it, so that they could walk around it. The porters and the guards would walk along the top of the wall to watch and, and, and there, was so, you know, there was sort of a sidewalk up there, so to speak. It's probably not how they would have described it, but I, you know, I think you, you kind of get the idea. And so what happens, what Nehemiah does here in Ezra, the, the leaders and the singers were divided into two groups. With Ezra leading one group, you see that in verse 36. And then in verse 38, we see Nehemiah leading the second group. And Nehemiah, it says, he was leading from the rear. He was last, which is just a great picture of Nehemiah, a great picture of his servant leadership. We've seen him in that light all throughout this book. But, but these two groups start in the south. So we have a, 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 a drawing up here. So hopefully you can see this. And so they start, these two groups, they start down here in kind of the southeast corner. They actually start at the fountain gate. Okay, we saw, what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 3 was that the fountain gate is a picture of us for the Holy Spirit. And so that's not a coincidence. These two groups are, are parading in this march following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And one group, the one that Nehemiah is leading, goes past the dung gate, away from the sin. That was a picture all the way around up here at the top. Ezra's group goes this side, fountain gate to the water gate, up through, and they meet up here at, at, at what's the prison gate. That wasn't one we saw actually in, in chapter three, but it was up, up here by the sheep gate. And so they 
parade around two groups. They walk up the stairs, it says, up the stairs at the fountain gate. And then one, go, one group goes one way, the other group goes the other way. So that, that's the path they took. And when they get around to that sheep gate, prison gate area, they come down off the wall and they enter into the temple court to worship. And that worship included praise and sacrifice, the giving of tithes and offerings, and it was quite the ceremony. But the question for us is, you know, what does it mean? What does all that mean? You know, I always, as I'm reading God's Word and as I'm studying it out, I'm always thinking about different things. And so, you know, one of the things I thought is, is why did Nehemiah and Ezra, certainly under the direction of God, but why did they choose to go about this dedication ceremony the way they did? To me, it's really interesting. Because for me, the natural thing would just be to meet in the temple court and meet at the temple and worship God there, that's where they ended. And, and obviously there, there were many reasons why they did this. But at least for us, it's because it pictures some very, what I think are very cool things about what a, a life dedicated to the Lord looks like. And here's where it starts. This is our first point. Because this ceremony, and specifically the way they did it, it confidently shows off the work of the Lord. It confidently shows off the work of the Lord. You see, Nehemiah and Ezra made it a point of emphasis to walk over every inch of the wall with multiple people on the wall at the same time. You know, why'd they do that? Well, they wanted to bear witness to a watching world that God had done the work. They wanted people to see it. They didn't just want to be inside the walls. They wanted to be on top of the walls. They wanted the watching world to see what was going on and to see that God had done a work and that he alone should be glorified. And they wanted to prove to all the naysayers that God knows what he's doing and that God knows how to build. Because I want you to think for a second, back back to when some of the earlier uh, studies that we did dealing with the opposition that they faced, particularly in chapter 4. And I want you to remember what the enemy told them right out of the chute, as they were mocking the project. Look back at Nehemiah 4, verse 3. It says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Tobiah said, You guys don't know what you're doing. And by extension, the Lord isn't in it. He said, that wall is going to be, even if they get it done, that wall is going to be so bad, even if a fox walks along it, it's going to fall down. So I don't think it's any coincidence that this dedication starts with people marching on the wall. Every inch of it, with many, many people on it at the same time. And it sure didn't fall. And what a powerful testimony that is, and that was to the unbelieving Gentiles of all that God can do when his people just have faith. And it was another opportunity to, you know, this is my take on it at least, to kind of shove it in their face and to prove to them that God was the one that actually did the work, even though they already knew it. We know that from chapter 6. In verses 15 and 16 we read, So the wall was finished in the the 20th and 5th day of the month of Elul in 50 and 2 days. Right? What amazing accomplishment. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, 
And all the heathen that were about us saw these things. They were much cast down in their own eyes. Why? For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And they knew it. And Nehemiah and Ezra wanted to still show it to them. This is what God did. And the children of Israel had full confidence in the work of the Lord. They weren't scared to walk on that wall. Their confidence was in the Lord and not in themselves. And here's the key to that. What that did was that proved that God did what only God can do. And that gives us the key word for this point. There's going to be a key word for each of our three points this morning. And that key word is proof. Because just as this dedication ceremony was meant to prove that part, them walking along the wall, it was meant to prove that God was who he said he was. Our lives as believers in Jesus Christ and your home and this church are to do the exact same thing. We are to prove our life should prove that God is who he says he is. That God works in miraculous ways. That God is still at work and he's still building. So let me ask you, when someone looks at you and sees your life, what does it say about God? Is your life proof positive that God is at work? that he's still at work today? You see, the Bible says that when we are born again, when we accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, that we are made a new creature. God does a new work. But just like we had the choice to accept Jesus' sacrifice, we also have a choice on how we are going to build on that work. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Jesus is the foundation and we're to build some stuff on top of it. So do you? Do you allow God to work through you? You can't build it out of your flesh. First Corinthians chapter 3 is very clear about that. Any of that, anything that you build out of your flesh is going to burn at the judgment seat of Christ. But do you allow God to build you? Is God building you? And are you proof of such a work? Do people look at you when they look at your life? Can they see that God is at work? You should ask yourself that question. Does your life show confidence? Man, that God is doing something. I'm not where I want to be and I'm not who I want to be yet, but God has changed me. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's at work in my life. That's what our life should say. And we should be able to be proof 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? You see, what we are to do is to look within ourselves honestly and then compare ourselves to, to what we know is this word, the only perfect standard that there is. And we, we're to look in it every day. And we're to line ourselves up with what that word says. You, you look in that mirror and respond to what you see. 
I mean, that's what a mirror does, right? I mean, we get up, listen, I'm sure nearly everyone looked in a mirror this morning, right? I did. And what's a mirror do? You, you look, you check yourself out, and if something looks crazy, <laughs> you change it. You fix it. Like if you got hair going, you know, you take the time and you wet it down, you do whatever you got to do. That's why you look in a mirror, to see what you look like and to see if there's something that needs to be changed. That's what God's word does for us. And you look in the mirror at least once a day, don't you? James 1, verses 22 through 24 says, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in the mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Man, does that describe our lives? Do we see it, and we're honest with ourselves, and we know that our life looks a little bit crazy? And yet, we're like, eh, it ain't that bad. Or whatever we say to ourselves to convince ourselves, and we just go on. And we forget. Listen. You're not the only one looking at yourself. The rest of the world is looking at you. And if your life looks crazy to them, what's that say about God? We are to be proof. Our life is to be proof that God still is at work. And if you see something, maybe it proves that Satan is more at work in your life than God. Do you change that? Do you repent of what you need to repent of? That's how you see whether you're in the faith or not, according to 2 Corinthians 13.5. And that, of course, for everyone, that starts with whether you are saved or not, whether you're truly a son of God. But it goes beyond that. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23 says, And you, who were sometime alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Listen to verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So after you get saved, are you continuing in the faith? Are you checking that mirror? Does your life say something about how good God is? Well, prove it. Prove it. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, prove all things. Well, you're part of all things. So don't, listen, don't take your own word for it. You lie to yourself too much. I lie to myself too much. We're not trustworthy enough. So prove it. Prove that your life says something about how good God is. And so how do you do it? Well, like we've already said, you line yourself up with God's word, but, but God's word goes on to tell us, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may what? Prove. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? 
You have the ability to prove that God's ways work. That his will is perfect. You have the ability to prove it. How do you do it? By not being conformed to this world. By not creating and living your own truth. No, you look in the mirror of this book and you're honest with yourself and you see what needs to change and you renew your mind. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've talked about it over and over. It's Ephesians 5.26, the washing of the water is word. It's 2 Corinthians 7.1, cleansing yourself by those having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. It's spending time daily in his word and looking into it and being honest with yourself and seeing where you don't line up and then changing what needs to be changed. And when you do that and when you're living that life and you're thankful and you're inside God's will and you're looking in God's word every day, you show the world that God is alive and that God has done something in you and he's still doing something in you. Because after you prove yourself, you are proof. You are proof that God works in people. Listen, there is no greater evidence that God is real than a changed life. As awesome as this earth is, all of his natural creation, and it all points to him. Psalm 19 tells us that. A changed life is better proof. That's why your testimony is the greatest witnessing tool you have. So be that proof. Live that life. Live a life of in confidence that God is working in you. God is changing in you. I mean, ultimately, if you're truly saved, he will, he will make that change ultimately. Philippians 1 tells us, be confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a what? A good work. He'll, he's going to finish it. And we will ultimately be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But man, let's do the work here to prove that he is who he says he is. That's the first way that a, a dedicated life is described. As we consistently or, we, or we're confidently showing off God. That's what our life is to do. We are confidently to, to show off what the Lord does and how he works. And then second, this dedication service and, a, and this dedication ceremony and a dedicated life courageously spreads the word of the Lord. So you're to show off the work of the Lord, how God has worked in you. And then we're to courageously spread the word of the Lord. Look back at verse 40. So stood the two companies, so the two groups that went around the wall and they came in the temple court. So stood the two groups of them that gave thanks in the house of God there in the temple. And I and half of the rulers with me and then, then all these priests. And, and look down in verse 42. Um, and Messiah and Shemaiah and Eleazar and Uzi and Johanan and Malchijah and Elam and Ezer. And then we looked at this last week. And the singers sang loud with Jezariah their overseer also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. 
The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. And this point, it harkens back to, to where we were last week, dealing with the passionate praise that, that they were bringing to the Lord. But here's what I want you to see. They were spreading God's word here. They were just doing it in song. Because they were singing what we now know to be God's word. They were singing those psalms, what David and Asaph had written some 500 years earlier. And they were courageous about it because they were singing loud. And the word loud, it only appears one other time in the book of Nehemiah. And in that other verse, it's related to the spreading of God's word. It's Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. It says, and they stood up in their, in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God, one fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Then stood up upon the chairs of the Levites, Jeshua, and Bani, and Kadmiel, and Shebaniah, and Bani, and Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. And it was in the context of, of speaking God's word and, and confessing who he was. And, and the, that word, loud, it's, it's an interesting study in the Bible. Now, it's, I want you to know it's not always good. Sometimes it's bad to be loud. For example, the strange woman in Proverbs chapter 7, it says she is loud and stubborn. She's not good. But every time the word loud is found in relation to singing and the spreading of God's word, it's always a good thing. It's what God wants us to do. Just a couple examples. 2 Chronicles 20, verses 18 and 19. And Jehoshaphat bowed his, his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Psalm 33:3 says, sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. And that's what was happening here in Nehemiah. They were singing. They were playing instruments loud. And like I told you last week, they got after it. It was a passionate praise. And I ask you this question, is yours? Is your praise passionate? Do you sing loud? Do you spread his word courageously in, in word and in song? When you think about the Lord in thankfulness, does it bring joy to your heart? There's a song that, that we used to sing that talked about this. And, and here are the words. It says, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid ground, it makes me want to shout. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Listen, when you think about that, do you ever do that? Do you take time to just think about what God has done in you? Does it make you want to shout? Does it make you want to be loud in your praise? And listen, I get it. We're not all great singers, and we don't want to be distracting. That's why most of us aren't up here on this stage on Sunday morning, myself included. But listen, if it's genuine, and if it's from the heart, who cares? 
And if you can't bring yourself to do it here, do it in your shower, in your car, do it somewhere. Let the Lord know that you have joy because he has given you joy. Psalm 98, 4 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. And we'll get to that joyful noise in just a second. But that's what he wants to hear from us. A joyful noise out of a joyful heart. That's what verse 43 is all about. And, and I love the way it puts it at the end of that verse. That their joy was heard afar off. Again, I told you this last week. Not that their singing was heard afar off. It was their joy that was heard. They could hear their heart and the joyful heart that they had, and it was a joyful noise that they made. And I just have to be honest with you here. It is amazing to me how many Christians never appear to be joyful, and they're always gloomy and grim. Listen, the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, you've, many of you, some of you have probably heard of him, popular philosopher, atheist, he has this quote. He says, if the Christians expect me to believe in their redeemer, they've got to look a lot more redeemed. And listen, that's a little bit funny, but there is some stark truth in that statement. And it's an indictment against Christianity. And I understand that life isn't always great, but that, has, that does not have anything to do with biblical joy. Biblical joy includes an inward peace and sufficiency that is not affected by outward circumstances. It's an inward peace, a sufficiency from the Lord that's not affected by outward circumstances because it comes from abiding in him. A great example of this is Paul's experience recorded in Philippians chapter 4. Look, starting in verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And now at the last, your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. And then he goes through the verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. It's not just that I want you to give to me. Because I've learned, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He was instructed. This is something that God told him and that God tells us also. Because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's, that's, that verse is used out of context quite a bit. We're putting this in the context of, of even suffering for the Lord. And knowing how to be abased, knowing how to bound. He said, I, I can do all things through Christ. I can make it through that because Christ is in me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye've done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire that, that fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I'm full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's what Paul had learned. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and what some of you know, others of you might not, 
Paul wrote this epistle from prison. This is one of what's known as his prison epistles. And he was still able to have a holy optimism in spite of difficult circumstances and difficult surroundings. And listen, we should as well. That should be something that characterizes us. Joy should be ever-present in our life. And it will be if you're dedicated to, to serving him, you're abiding in him, thankful in his will. Because what you have to understand, and, and I know you know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is that biblical joy does not equal worldly happiness. And we, we get so messed up in all sorts of aspects of life by accepting the world's definition of things. And we've done it with joy as well. The joy that the world offers is a pale imitation of the true joy that only God can give us. The joy that unsaved people experience is a temporary joy that comes and goes, depending on the situation at the time. And if things are going well, there's joy. When things are difficult, there's no joy. We see this, God tells us about this type of false joy in Job chapter 20, verse 5. He said that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. I mean, that's, that's false joy. That's worldly joy. And they're really describing happiness because happiness is an emotion. And, and this is going to trip up some of you, but joy is not. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is something that can be ever-present in our life. And emotions come and go. And happiness is that. And God never intended for people to, to be in any emotional state all the time. God never intended for us to even be happy all the time. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there's, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There's times for different seasons in life. But biblical joy we can have all the time. It comes from abiding in him. And he is in us. And it's readily available and willing to anybody who wants it. We can always have joy, but we don't always have to be happy. And if you just look at the root of the word happy, you'll understand this point. It's hap. Hap means chance. And it's the root of several words. Happen, happening, happenstance, haphazard, happy. And so what that means is that happiness is a glad feeling that depends on something good happening. And God is for all of that. He wants you to experience happy times, but his greater desire is for you to have unconditional joy. And Jesus describes this difference. John 16, 22, it says, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Paul makes this same distinction, and 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many riches, having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Joy doesn't depend on circumstances. Therefore, it can and should be ever-present. The Holy Spirit is ever-present, right? So unless you are quenching the Holy Spirit in your life, joy is always available. And it should come out in your life as you courageously pr praise the Lord in song as you courageously spread his word 
as you evangelize and witness to those around you. But I also want you to notice that when you have joy in the Lord, it spreads to others as well. It's contagious. And that gives us the key word for this point, and that is promotion. Our life is here to prove that the Lord is who he says he is, that we are proof. Our life is also here to promote him, not ourselves. We're to be, we should be the biggest cheerleaders for the Lord that, that exist. We're to promote him, and we need to promote the Lord everywhere we go, in our life and our words. And men, you can experience this in your home if you will courageously spread his word. If you talk about the Lord and sing about the Lord and be joyful in the Lord and promote the Lord, guess what? Your family will likely follow. Of course, it's not a guarantee, but set the example. And I say that because of how Nehemiah ends chapter 12, verse 43. It says, the wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. This was a family affair. So be courageous in your home. Don't be so prideful that it keeps you from praising the Lord in your home and talking about the Lord in your home in front of your wife and in front of your kids. That's the example that we are to set. We are to promote the Lord. This also gives us the order in which we are to spread God's word as well. It starts in the home and it goes to the uttermost. The wives also and the children rejoice and the joy of the Lord was heard even afar off. Man, start in your home like as great as it is to, to go across the world, and, and the Bible tells us to, we are a mission-minded church and we will always be that and we won't be so consumed in our community that we don't look outside of that. But listen, if we do that and our kids don't get saved, man, what? no, start in your home. Win your kids to the Lord, instill in them a biblical worldview and then go with them. To the world. Start there and build it from there. So a dedicated life confidently shows off the work of the Lord. It courageously spreads the word of the Lord. And then third, the last thing we see in this passage is that a dedicated life cheerfully sacrifices in worship of the Lord. Look back at verse 43 again. Again, this is our key verse. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. And at that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, and for the tithes to gather into them out of the fields of the cities the portions of the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. And, and we can go on and, and, and finish this chapter. This ends with just the giving of these tithes and offerings and, and giving to the Levites and to the singers. But I, what I want you to see here is that their joy in this dedication ceremony was connected to the offering of sacrifices. They cheerfully sacrificed. This is because of the source of true joy, God himself. Verse says, God had made them to rejoice with great joy. And, and again, if you're getting your joy from any other place, this won't be your response. This is one way you can know that you have true biblical joy. 
that you're willing to sacrifice and worship to the Lord. This is the same joy Nehemiah spoke of in chapter 8 and verse 10. And he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send the portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we talked about this when we went through chapter 8 and connected it to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 that says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'm not going to go through that study again. You can go back to listen to that sermon if you're interested. But the connection is that biblical joy has its roots in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Joy has always been tied to sacrifice. You see, the source of my joy is solely based on the relationship I have with God the Father because of the sacrifice of God the Son. You see, the believer's joy is based on the cross. That's why you see it as the focus of Paul's ministry. 1 Corinthians 2.2 says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And listen, if the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't bring you joy, even when life isn't going as you planned, then there is an issue of selfishness that you need to address. And we all deal with it from time to time. But if you deal with it all the time, then you need to check yourself. Are you saved? Has the blood he shed as a sacrifice on that cross been applied to you? If the answer is yes, then you have reason to be joyful. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. And again, this is so much different than the world teaches. Everyone rejoices when the wind is at their back and life is good, but not when things are bad, not when life requires you to sacrifice. You see, when the world talks of sacrifice, and, and we even get this in our minds, again, we just so readily accept the world's definitions of things. And so what, what's the first thing that pops in your mind when you think of sacrifice? It's usually like pain and Suffering, not joy. How, how can you rejoice when you've had a huge disappointment in your life? How can you rejoice when there's been a tragedy occur in your world? Let me tell you how. It's this simple. You obey the Bible and you focus your thoughts appropriately. You renew your mind and you focus your thoughts appropriately. Listen to the prophet Habakkuk. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Listen, that's all bad. It's, the fig tree is created to blossom. The, there's supposed to be fruit. There's, the labor of the olive shall fail when the fields don't yield any meat, no crops. Well, what do we do? Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
And historically, this points to the time of captivity. Prophetically, it, it points to the time of tribulation. But inspirationally, this can apply to us at any time. When our life isn't going as we expected it to go, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's a decision. Our joy is never to be based on circumstance. In fact, did you know that just like thankfulness, the Bible tells us to rejoice all the time? This is how I know it's not an emotion. In the same passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 that tells us to give thanks in everything, it also says rejoice evermore. Paul told the Philippians the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So if we can do it all the time, he, would, he wouldn't ask us to if we couldn't do it. But does that describe you? If not, then change your focus. And don't focus on the bad, focus on the cross. Focus on the things listed four verses later in Philippians 4.8. And then begin to sacrifice in return. Give back to the Lord. Sacrifice to him in worship because he sacrificed for you. That is what will get your focus back to where it needs to be. And that's what a dedicated life does. Like I've already said in the Bible, joy is always connected to sacrifice. You can get it. 1 Samuel eleven fifteen 15 gives us an example of that. Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18 in the New Testament, Paul gives us an example of that. It brought him joy to sacrifice for the Philippians. And yet, many in churches today aren't willing to give anything. And many believers struggle to tithe, struggle to show up every week, struggle to be involved in ministry that is convenient let alone truly sacrifice for the Lord. When was the last time you sacrificed just because you love him? For all the parents out there, doesn't it mean something to you when your kids do something for you just because? And they give you something just because. It's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. They do it just because they love you. Doesn't that mean something to you? Doesn't that make you feel special? Well, do you think the Lord's any different? He made us after his image, and he loves it when his children give to him just because. Just because they love him, not for what they can get out of it in return. And that really what's we, what gets to what we see in verse 44. They gave their first fruits, the first part of their crop. And this is something you see throughout the Old Testament, and there's a principle there for us as well. That's why we talk about, you know, giving off the top, because giving the first First fruits is a powerful display of faith. And this gives us the key word for this point. And that's, and that's priority. Our life should show, should be proof that God is who he says he is. Our, our lives should promote the Lord. And our lives should make him the priority. They should show that. Sacrifice, giving the first fruits is all about priority. And what God means to you with respect to everything else. You see, God is to get the top spot. Because just think about those first fruits for a farmer. In Old Testament Israel, it was an agricultural society. And what happens if you give off the top, you give the first fruits, and then as soon as you do, the floods come. And all the rest of your crops are destroyed. You have to trust the Lord. Again, yet many in churches today don't live by this principle. They give based on what's left over. It's not biblical giving. This is not based in sacrifice. 
And it's not based in trust. And when you're able to do it, the joy that God gives back. I told you last week, you can never outgive God. And when you just give based on what's left over, that's not from a cheerful heart. Paul told us what God desires for 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Is that you? Or let me ask it this way. Is your life dedicated to serving the Lord? Because if it is, sacrificing of your life. Not even, money is just one example. Of your life isn't an issue. So if it is an issue, you should check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> A dedicated life confidently shows trust in the Lord's work. It courageously and loudly spreads God's word, starting in your home and then going to the world. It lifts God high because he is deserving, and then it cheerfully sacrifices and gives in order to worship the Lord. So if that description is that description of a dedicated life, is it a description of your life? And if not, will you make the changes necessary?